did you really have to go from wet yeast to a penis joke? I mean, <laughs> I did. I mean, this was this is a great episode. I'm enjoying every minute of it. We needed. I'm sure my wife will listen to this, and she'll just be proud of me that I didn't use the word moist. The Still Talking Podcast, our reverent industry podcast with Colton Zeno and myself, Brian. And today we have a guest, Cody. Say hi, Cody. Hello, Cody. Good oh, job. Good. <laughs> Coming right out of the gate with the dad jokes. Love it. That's right. Uh, this is going to work out great. Cody, who are you? Where are you from? And then we'll jump into some news. Yeah, yeah. So Cody Snyder, um, I am a yeast guy. Um I work for AB Maori or AB Biotech, which is a division of AB Maori. Uh, I'm currently based out of Kansas City, so I've been uh, I've been doing fermentation and yeast stuff for uh, like the last 12, 13 years. But it's uh, I have a weird industry crossover where I've come from fuel ethanol. So it's uh, been the last year in beverage and and learning my way around and, and meeting you guys and having a good time. So outstanding. Awesome. Well, we're glad we're glad to have you, and it's 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 really nice that uh, I kind of met Cody when I worked for Cream Fun Factory or whatever. Wait, I can just call it Beam Suntory now. So. But uh, so it was nice that you know he's got to he's he's now had the opportunity to see me in both my worlds. So really glad to have you on, Cody. Yeah, yeah. No, I think this will be fun. I think uh, I, I don't know. It's uh, I come from a just a different background, I think, than a lot of distillers do. So having this conversation i'm looking forward to cool we'll be sure to disappoint yeah. <laughs> that is our nature all right i'll give you guys some quick news and information uh good news uh apparently america has uh made up with canada and mexico to lift retaliatory tariffs on american whiskey so good news on that that's right i was actually hoping you would you would bring that up i did so yeah colt what have you heard about that what are your thoughts i was hoping you were going to talk about it on this and and teach our listener um who apparently has it together enough to export his whiskey his or her whiskey into canada and mexico but doesn't have it together enough to learn the news before our you know, two-week <laughs> right intro to it <laughs> hey uh colton i need you to shut up with all of your logic and uh yeah, i mean come on demographics that's not something we're worried about with this podcast although it is worth noting that even though these retaliatory tariffs are no longer an issue uh we do essentially still have i believe a 25 percent tariff on american whiskey in the european union so that has not been resolved yet to my understanding and in fact, I believe that Spain is one of the largest uh, importers of, of bourbon. I did not know that at all. That's. I think that you're making that up. That sounds like a big <laughs> convention. I'm actually yeah. still not entirely convinced Spain is a real country. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I want numbers on this, Brian. Come with numbers. Right. Right. How does this really impact <laughs> us? Uh, yeah, I have no idea. Actually, <laughs> Mexico and Canada are definitely markets that we sell to though but no i know the biggest growing markets are definitely asian markets you know uh china india as well as the european union is a pretty it's been growing a lot over the last 10 years so that's one that's it's potentially still a pretty big hurdle hey i uh i drank another i've been drinking uh bourbon cream like every night i just went through that <laughs> that makes me so happy it's so good. It's like a frosty. It's like a frosty. I'm like drinking an alcoholic frosty. I want you to go back and listen to a few episodes ago, like maybe the first couple, and uh, hear yourself talk about bourbon cream as opposed to now. You're basically a pod person. Listen, we all know that I'm not going to do that. <laughs> right. yeah. Cody, Cody, are you pro or con uh, bourbon cream? I am pro alcohol. Good answer. <laughs> It depends on the night, but yeah, it's uh, it, right now it's heavy bourbon. Good man, you you were right, Brian. I was wrong. Is that what you wanted? Uh, I just wanted to hear that part, so that can be part of a shirt series now for the Still Talking Podcast. Brian was right. Colt Zeno was wrong. Also, bourbon cream, motherfucker. Yeah, new intro. And I can't say that uh, I actually like bourbon cream. I like 
a bourbon cream. Touche. I will give you that. Yeah. Most of my experiences with that same bourbon cream. So, <laughs> all right. So moving from international news, I'll go into some of the state updates. Uh, we're getting ready to put out the summer issue of Artisan Spirit Magazine, which is Zeno's favorite publication in the entire world. Oh, I thought you were going to say his favorite issue. <laughs> he's about the summer. One. Yeah, the one that he's never seen yet. Uh, but we've got some new <laughs> guild updates, so I figured I'd skim a couple that were interesting. A lot of lobbying information, obviously. Uh, Maryland has seen some success. They've gotten about two-thirds of their proposed bills passed and are awaiting the governor governor's signatures. Uh, one of them involves revisions to the current offsite uh, offsite permit allowance for distillers. It basically allows them unlimited farmers markets and more offsite events, 34 total, up from only six per year previously. So that's that's pretty significant for them. Unlimited farmers markets. I know that seems like such a small thing, but there's a lot of states that can either do no farmers markets or they're limited to just like a couple a year. Uh, you, you know, Cody, you can you can say those jokes online. That was actually pretty funny. Well, you, you jumped right past it, and it's moved on, and I'm like, well, shit, I can't let this one go, so I'm going to just have to text it to you. No, no, it's just a, it's a stream of consciousness on this podcast. So if you guys didn't see his, his note, he said, is the summer issue a swimsuit issue? <laughs> Dude, Cody, seriously, we have been angling for a while now to do like a centerfold issue where it's like – big hairy distiller Zeno's not the centerfold is he oh that's that's what I'm angling for is like Zeno in front of a still with nothing but like a mop it's gonna be real graphic I have I have no shame I will totally do I know that. it'll be great <laughs> I'm really excited uh all right New Mexico has uh they're celebrating a legislative victory uh they have a pa- they passed an important legis- legislation resulting in a state excise tax reduction of 80 percent for small producers similar to the FET reduction on the federal level so that's pretty damn fantastic for them 80 percent yeah so what does that basically that brings it in line with (laughs) wine and beer okay so yeah so that's pretty great that's awesome yeah that's a huge deal and actually i believe uh i think it was either actually no i think i'm gonna lie i think it was it was either new mexico or another state that was actually looking at an excise tax increase uh that almost went through so they kind of lucked out there i believe it was new mexico that had that last year so do you think that all of this, this legislation going through is going to support or hurt the federal excise tax? Yeah, right. We've got to talk about it or else Mark is going to kill me when I sleep. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Mark will send us some very strongly worded letters. In all seriousness, though, like there's all these things popping up on the state level, right? I would, th- I would think it would help because it's, it's just a further, you know, more data that it's helping jobs and communities and you know, all all the, all the key words we want to say. And especially because so many of these States have a tie in with local agriculture that really helps kind of push that narrative that this is an industry that's tied in with small business, agriculture, it's hiring, you know, this isn't just, you know, so to speak from a talking point standpoint, big business making a ton of money. This is actual, you know, these, this is a job creator. So seeing it on a state level, that's kind of parodied on the federal level. I think you're right. That should theoretically help with that, you know, that accurate storyline to help things keep moving on. Cody, how much do you talk about federal excise tax? <laughs> on a daily basis. Um, <laughs> you know, it's practically every other sentence that comes out of my mouth. <laughs> I mean, he hasn't, he hasn't mentioned it, but Yeast has the highest excise tax of anything. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. No, no, you've kind of dumbfounded us all. So I'm going to give you one or two more, and then we're going to let someone smart like Cody talk. Uh, so actually, yeah, following in with the same vein, uh, New York has proposed a Senate bill S246, which is a production tax credit relief. Currently, the production tax credit available to other beverage categories in New York grants relief of 90, uh, up 95 up to 103 percent eligible uh, state tax excise or excise tax. So this would hopefully bring it in line with those other beverage categories. So, yeah, again, we are seeing a pretty definitive pattern. 
I'll give you one more, and then we're going to move on. Uh, Oregon State, uh, they are working with the OL- like the university. Yes, yes, just the university. <laughs> I know something about that. <laughs> so the Oregon Distillers Guild is seeking to improve the economic viability of distillery uh, distillery tasting rooms by allowing distillers to keep more of the money it currently returns to the state from on-site product sales. Our proposed change would occur in the OLCC. Uh, budget bill, SB 5519, the bill would reduce the revenue transfer back to the OLCC from 33% to 5% for tasting room sales. So essentially what's happening in uh, Oregon- I didn't know it was 33%. Yes. Good Lord. And that's, so essentially yeah. that is, it's basically to cover transportation costs because the OLCC, you know, it's, it's a controlled, controlled state. state. Yeah. Exactly. But because they're selling out of their tasting room, the OLCC is literally doing nothing to transport, but they're still actually collecting that tax of that 33% tax to cover transportation, distribution, things like that. So their hope is to cut that down from 33 to 5%, which is obviously a huge economic incentive to them, um, while still helping to support the LL- OLCC so they're not completely cut out, you know, keeping their operating costs. Uh, that's pretty gross. That's extortion. I know. I, know. I mean, doesn't, isn't almost every state you're still paying a tax out of your tasting room? Pre- like basically pretending you've sent it to the distributor. Yeah. But my understanding that. is most aren't that egregious. <laughs> I don't think most, are, most aren't 33%. I could be wrong on that, but that seems to be one of the higher ones. That's the only number I've heard for any of that scenario. So I'm going to say that sounds bad. And there's a really good, <laughs> that's the worst sounding one up. ever. And let's be honest. We're not even sure Oregon is a state. So this could all be bullshit. Hey, I spent four years of my life there. <laughs> and so did Colton. We can var- validate it's a state. <laughs> yeah, it exists. <laughs> it exists. Yeah. All right. That is your news and information. You were very welcome. Thank you. Uh, Cody, say smart things to make us feel better about ourselves. Oh yeah. That's going to be tough. <laughs> I know. We'll never feel better about it. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's impossible until I get that centerfold. Yeah, um, that's right. I already have all the photos. It's, try- it's just trying to pick the right ones, you know. Gross. Um, how did you get them? Did my aunt send them to you? <laughs> Wait, what? Is that a Game of Thrones reference? Is that what you're going for? <laughs> uh, no, I've pretty much sworn off Game of Thrones. <laughs> Did someone die this week on Game of Thrones? <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the series died. It's over. Yeah, yeah there was there was some incest, a, a dragon, and uh, maybe some dragon incest. Yeah, dragon incest. Um, Cody, how did you transition from fuel ethanol into the much better aspect of beverage ethanol? Yeah, you know, so I will. I guess let me back up and go full history of my alcohol career i guess because it's been unique um so i started off in a lab and did laboratory things i as a microbiologist coming out of school and and got into a qa lab within fuel ethanol and, and learned production at a different scale so like when i go to a, a beverage distillery today compare that to a fuel ethanol plant I would say fuel ethanol is very scientific, very numbers driven. You know, you pull a sample, you see the numbers and you do something. Um, go into a beverage facility and there's a lot more art to it. So you know, as I look into my my career is all the science-based uh, laboratory, understanding the process and then went on to really specializing in fermentation through yeast companies and enzyme companies and, and also did some production. So. The dream is, as I was in fuel ethanol and watching the markets and being parts of facilities that got um, shut down because of bad market conditions that were completely under control. The dream always was okay. I see beverage alcohol, and I have friends that have gone beverage. Um, I want to know what's going on on that side. Plus, it's just more fun. Uh, so I got the opportunity about a year ago to come to AB Maori. Um, and work within our division and my boss he said i'm gonna let you keep a foot or a toe in fuel ethanol so you know what's going on and you can keep your background there but really explore beverage and that's what i've been doing for the last year and i think it's so interesting to compare the two industries so 
especially the way the beverage industry moves and and makes decisions versus fuel ethanol. It, it's two completely different atmospheres, but doing the same basic thing. So what do you what do you think that the beverage guys are doing completely wrong? <laughs> oh, completely wrong. Well, have you heard their podcasts? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's also that art thing that he was saying. Yeah. The, art, the yeah. lack of data. Yeah. It's it's amazing. I it, it, I don't think there's anything wrong per se, but I think it's it's two different directions. Um it, it, I, Jason, when you worked at, uh, I'm going to go on on your background here a little bit. At previous organization, you had an HPLC, and you probably measured sugar profiles and fermentation very regularly. Or is that false? I think he signed an NDA on about just about. <laughs> or can you say that thing that they did? I, I mean, no, I said, we did, we we did not do that. <laughs> okay. I say that's a general process question, so it, I wouldn't think that would. No, 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 no. I don't. I can say that. I mean, not. No, that's not really. Occasionally, that would be done, but we would do more enzyme chemistry. It was more for still loss out of the bottom of the still. Uh, okay. As far as fermentations transpired, so you're like, yeah, you're right to check sugars and mm-hmm. how the fermentation actually processed. There wasn't a ton of that done. Very, there was some, but it's it happened so fast. Right, you're on a three day beer schedule. Yeah. So, so when I look at, at what we did in, in on the fuel side, is uh, I would have a lab tech lab technician every two hours monitor every two to six hours monitor the cook process. So I knew what starch and sugar conversion looked like going into fermentation. Um, right on a very regular schedule. So I could tell you that my sugar profile fit what it was supposed to, or if there was an issue, I could say, okay, our enzymes aren't where they need to be, or our grain isn't what, but we aren't cooking correctly. We're not preparing grain correctly. And then when we got into fermentation, we ran 24 hour shifts, which is different than I would say 98% of the beverage industry. so on a 24-hour shift, I could come in in the morning and I would be able to see every six hours, here's what Fermenter 1 did. So it had a sugar profile of XYZ in terms of higher sugars to glucose. And I could see how every six hours or every 10 hours, whatever my sampling schedule looked like, I could look at a fermenter and say, okay, this fermenter is doing exactly what it's supposed to do and it fits a profile that it's supposed to fit. Now, we only cared about one thing, and that was, or two things. We cared about conversion of sugar to zero and conversion of alcohol to the most alcohol we could get. This whole flavor profile is something new, something we didn't care about. So it's just, we want to go from point A to point B in 48 hours or 52 hours and be done with the fermenter. It was very much, very much science and here's the numbers and how do we drive number A to number B. That makes sense. Right. Yeah, it does. But the, so that's great. And I will say that there were experiments done that we do, but it was not on a regular cadence like that on every six hours. Mm-hmm. We did do different cooking regimes where you're like, okay, a cook takes X amount of time. And they don't, and big whiskey, a lot of, they don't use enzymes, right? That's, yep, a yep. Bad, that's a bad word there. So they just do a malt addition, right? And, mm-hmm. And then we, what we do is say, how long is that rest for conversion? So there were some, there was some HPLC testing there, but honestly, in but my not every, year, not every cook, yeah, right? And my exactly, and in my four years there, I think I saw it maybe three times, right? Because it just, it just wasn't like it was more of, and I, I understand what you're saying, Cody. That's great. It, it, mm-hmm. you're, I, I totally get that, but it, it gets into the flavor and like, how do you develop that flavor? For, for sure. And, and that's the, that's the thing that as we compare the two industries, as I looked at what I did on fuel ethanol, I filled a fermenter every seven hours. I think it's been a few years. I filled the fermenter every seven hours and I knew what every fermenter filled for the course of the year looked like. How See, big were these fermenters? Uh, 130. I was a small plant. I had 130,000 gallon fermenters. A big plant would have yeah. 700,000 gallon fermenters. So Lord. it's just a different 
operating environment. Um, Absolutely. Are they all closed too? Like, uh, yep. Yeah. 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 So, you know, so when we talk about, I, I mean, hermetically with, closed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's just, you know, when you ask the question of what is wrong, what is, it's just a different, I look at fuel ethanol and it's, it's a factory, right? It's, you're going in every day. You have a certain set of parameters that you have to hit. And if you don't hit them, uh, you're going to get hit financially. And you see it when you see plant managers in the fuel ethanol industry. If I went in today and met with the plant manager and went at another meeting two weeks from today, he would look like he aged five years in those two weeks because of the stress <laughs> of managing a large facility and not having any control over his bottom line because it's all commodity driven. Well, see, I um, too age five years in two weeks, but that's mostly because my liver is failing. <laughs> <laughs> We're not supposed so, so to laugh then, at that, but it's it's really unfortunately yeah, accurate. He's super jaundiced. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so then when I compare, then you take the, the compare and contrast. You have this factory that is very much a we're producing a widget to the beverage industry. And you look at it and say, okay, I have to produce something that is going to fit my palate because if I don't like what I'm producing, then I'm not going to produce it. And B is going to fit a palate that someone else is going to drink such that I can sell it. And there's there's facilities that I go into. Notice I don't use the word plant when I talk about distilleries that are making beverage facilities or, or distilleries I go into and it is just a different, it's a different mindset, a different timeline, very different decision-making process because it's more laid back, I would say. Um, and every, every decision that is made is not based on yield. It's based on, okay, if I add XYZ ingredient, I have to make sure that that's a palatable product that will be a sellable product and it's all about the flavor componentry so i don't want to say there's anything right or wrong about both industries but i do i guess if i were to take my history in the last year in beverage and my 13 years and 12 years in fuel i wish we could find the perfect marriage between the two to have this science-based driven ideology of what a fermenter should look like and then knowing that science-based ideology, how do we drive that to the, the art side of here's the flavor profile we should get. So you're saying you want to make fuel taste better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Science. I think that, I think that there is a middle ground though too. And it's like, yeah. uh, you know, Cody, if you would have came to me two years ago, which I don't know. So I guess we met a year ago, whatever, mm-hmm. listen that, but like if you would have came to me and you're like, Oh Yeah. It's not all about yield. I've been like, you know what? Fuck you, Cody. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, two years ago, I would have been like, hey, bro, it's all about yield. And yeah. what are you doing, man? You love all the sugar on the table. And I'm like, yeah, it's a lot of profile. It's a, definitely a lot of profile. And respecting certain things that we did traditionally to kind of maintain that mm-hmm. profile. But at the same time, there's still, I mean, the industry standard for big whiskey is 5.25 proof gallons per bushel right so mm-hmm. it's like I, I don't know what it is in fuel ethanol um three gallons per bushel 200 proof okay but you know i think there <laughs> is a, i think there is a middle ground there where oh, yes you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna run hblc on every every mash no like they're do they're doing 16 mashes a shift and eight and an eight hour shift mm-hmm. roughly and uh, yeah, it would be nice to have that data. But what are you going to do with it? Is, that's my, I have the biggest question with, so we did this in fuel ethanol all the time and I loved it because I'm a numbers guy. But at the same time, I would go days of the same numbers being generated and I'm wasting a person's, I don't want to say wasting a person's time, but they did the same test. They got the same results. Great. We're doing exactly what we need to do. What am I doing with that data other than putting it in a spreadsheet and making sure it doesn't bucket trend? Which yeah, it, yeah. It, you got that's why you got to use mini tab, right? You got to look exactly. Yeah, which it's the only time in my life where I'm going to say that. Yeah, 
you have to use Minitab. You know, the <laughs> clunkiest software that's oh, the most amazing thing ever. Anyways, yeah, I, I hear you. But I think that, so I'm really interested. I'm really glad you, you jumped ship and came over to the beverage side because I don't think so much, yeah, okay, it's all about starch, conversion to sugar, conversion to alcohol. And I see fuel ethanol, okay, we want zero sugar left on the table. But if you could, you from what you got there, you could take some of that technology, some of those skill set, and apply it to what is actually happening in that fermentation. So oh, yes. ester formation, organic acids, and everything to how that actually changes the distal, right? Mm-hmm. Well, here's here's a here's a perfect example that um, I hope someone plays with because I think there's a lot that can take place here. So. Last, the company I worked for before coming to AB Biotech was a grain slash enzyme company. We had a alpha amylase that was genetically engineered into our corn. So a distiller would buy, or if you, an alcohol plant, we'll just call it a distiller, would buy a portion of their grain, would have this specialty enzyme in it, and put it in. Now, this enzyme had a different, like malt, right? And as you guys learn grain profiles, you know that certain grains break down starch at certain temperatures and certain enzymes and malt has different activity levels of, of how things work, right? Hopefully that makes all sense. Anyway, our enzyme was hot. It, it liked these super hot temperatures. Well, I learned through this whole profile that the more you drive grain on a gelatinization curve, the better breakdown of starch you get. But I also think about this on a flavor profile as well. So if you, and this is strictly cooked, right? So not getting into the fermentation aspect or the distillation aspect and, and, and all of that. But if you really drive grain to do different things by going hotter, um, really taking advantage of enzymes or even coming down such that your enzymes may or may not have the activity level that they could have at certain temperatures, but really playing cook games can that drive flavor profiles that are unique um and give you better yield or less yield but really there's so many i call it games so many games that can be played in the setup of fermentation solely through temperature or ph that will drive every not everything but will drive a lot of the direction you want to go in your facility wait so this this corn it had the enzymes, but it didn't need to be malted or anything. You could just throw it in with the rest of it and cook it. Yes, it was a it was a interesting product. Um, so no malting took place. The genetically modified corn had an had an alpha enzyme, alpha amylase awesome. genetically inserted into it. Uh, I mean, here's the thing: when you guys look at fuel ethanol and ingredient additions. Fuel ethanol has different yeast strains now that are genetically enhanced to do all sorts of crazy different things, such as glycerol reduction and higher yield and secrete enzymes. Uh, corn has gone down that path too in fuel ethanol, so there's a technology gradient that's there. So when you step back and ask that question again, yeah, we had a, a corn that required zero malting. It just came off the field, uh, ground it through your hammer mill or your roller mill, um, put it in slurry or, or your cook process and the enzyme was activated once you got above a certain temperature and then it followed typical enzyme curves which is pretty similar to like i mean you're because you have to gelatinize your corn anyways yeah right so it's it's almost like it's evolved that way you know, it's genetically modified so evolved is kind of counterintuitive to say that right but <laughs> right? but uh yeah but but i mean that's that's pretty clever that's that's pretty neat and i like it you you say glycerol reduction and you know, glycerol is part of the metabolic pathway for lactobacillus. It's like you could reduce some of those organic acids. It'd be really neat to play with those kind of things. Now we're sitting mm-hmm. in a fucking virtual micro lab that everyone is totally <laughs> bored with. Yeah, you know, I think yeah. that's the, I mean, I know before the podcast, we were talking a little bit about different experimental yeast and all this. There's from the fuel ethanol side, and, and I hate to make this a fuel because it's a discussion because, you know, we're beverage guys, but they've done so many crazy things across different companies in terms of using yeast that express enzymes or have suppression of different pathways so that they have a lower glycerol production and increase yield. I mean, there's just so many different things that that industry has done that as we look at distiller's yeast, it hasn't gone that right. 
yet. And I think it will be a stretch to get the beverage industry to go that direction because of legacy. I mean, we look at the legacy of facilities and and uh, especially the big guys that have been around for a while. And I think that funnels down to craft and craft also has the experimentation to go up as well. But I just think there's a lot of legacy within the operation that to get to some of those, those genetically enhanced organisms is going to take a while. Um, and there's public perception sure. behind and it. And also I assume there's a money issue too, because it takes a lot of financial investment to be able to create those, you know, GMO products and then they're patented and then you make the money for on sure. book sales. So I, I can't imagine that there'd be enough demand for those to actually pay for that kind of research funding and then patenting it. Is that, which, is that accurate? Yes, but it's hard to say. Well, but also also looking at it from a sales point of view, it's not like genetically modified yeast whiskey is what's hot selling right now. I would. I would absolutely <laughs> go out of my way to get my genetically modified <laughs> bourbon cream. Yeah. Science for the win. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, honestly, I think it. there's a time and a place for it. I just don't think we're there yet. Um, that may be a five-year, 10-year 20 year down the road idea. But uh, I think there's a lot of factors when I look at, at how the industry, I, I don't know, it's interesting how the beverage industry is an, a very old legacy based industry. But I also look at it that there's so many learnings that I've had from a different but similar um, industry that has crossover. It's like, okay, we learned all of this based on yield how can we apply this and do yield and flavor at the same time? Um, right. And, and that's the huge question I have every time I meet with, you know, with the sellers. I mean, Colton, I had a conversation the other day on the phone about, you know, some, some grain questions. And that's the first thing that flashes back. Well, I battled an issue like this in my facility when I was running it. And it's like, here's what I did with yield. Now I know how bad that whole fermentation smells. Oh, you're probably going to have a flavor issue. Oh, yeah. My my question was, I had a bunch of mold on my grain. And I said, can I still use this? <laughs> that means it's good. If, yeah, if the mold likes it, it's got to be high quality. So definitely a pro. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a camembert. Yeah. I was just in Normandy. It's a cheese I remember. Give me a break. Yeah. Uh, Cody, were you there for the whole de-oiled corn movement in fuel ethanol because that was that that kind of changed the game there's two ways that guys got rid of oil in the in the industry is they either did it in the front end and removed it before fermentation or they did it in the back end where it went through fermentation and you did it with your distiller screen well guys who removed too much oil in the front end had significant foaming problems yeah exactly it's a natural surfactant so we were throwing they were turning around and throwing the oil that they just segregated back in back into their fermenters to keep their foam. That that's the old school way at the old bourbon distilleries. Like if they have a really active fermentation that's foaming up, they literally get corn oil. Oh yeah, just, that's what they use, right? Like I mean, because they're not gonna, they're too afraid to use like whatever firm cap is the brand yeah. that I well, it's, right like it's silicone. Cheap, it's a yeah. cheap solution in my mind. It's yeah. cheap and easy, and you know that there's should be minimal if any impact on what you're doing i mean you're gonna have corn oil in there anyway you're just a higher concentration and that leads us naturally into fermentation which is what we should be talking about instead of fucking fuel ethanol <laughs> god damn it cody i mean i apologize yeah no that's all right it's super interesting i think that you know i i mean i'm not gonna speak for colton but at the same time I'm, i am is that uh we there's a lot that we can learn from the fuel ethanol there's a lot of takeaways i mean it's not like we're doing it's kind of it is totally different it is almost completely different but there are takeaways be it grain and processing and whatnot yeah i mean if we if we look at what they do and and then think about it in our you know in our facilities and say okay they did that for yield i'll do that for yield and then change it this way to have you know my flavor profiles stay sort of the same here's the Here's the takeaway that I would give you guys on that going into fermentation. I always view fermentation as how you set up fermentation. So I start when I look at any fermentation problem or scenario, it all starts in cook. So did I cook 
or set up my grains correctly. So it doesn't matter what yeast I'm using initially. So, you know, if I'm setting up a facility today or working with a brand new facility, um, I would say it doesn't matter what yeast you're using up front. Let's set the grain up first, right? So we'll get to yeast here in a second. So ignore that whole, don't, it doesn't matter because it does. But first and foremost, set your grain up because if you don't have starch conversion or if you don't put a sugar scenario that's favorable for what you're trying to accomplish, then why use the most specialized yeast or the best yeast or that gives you a certain flavor profile because you didn't put it in a good environment to begin with. Does that make sense? So everything in my mind starts with that whole cook scenario. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, so like, do you guys, so does Amy Mari, do you guys do lab-based fermentations? And like, what are you looking for? Are you looking for, you know, attenuation, ester formation? Like, what are you look? what is... Do you do fermentations at a lab scale and say, we're going to, you know, run analytical equipment to measure this? We, we have. So we've done a, a number of different things. You know, I did a talk at ACSA where we compared two of our yeast strains where um, it, it really was a complete fermentation. We're looking at alcohol production, sugar consumption, and uh, ester profiles and, and, was able to draw the nice little spider charts that you see on that side. So Amy Maurer, you know, we just built a new or expanded our labs here in St. Louis. Um, and we're working on getting some more equipment and more people and, and doing some work on that side to be better suited to handle the industry uh, or all of the industries that we serve, which is beer, wine, still spirits, nutrition. So there's a, a large sector of non-baking uh specialty yeast that we handle, but we do what you're saying. You know, we have the we have the ability through our labs globally to to take a look at those things. Um, but first and foremost, as as I look at them, it all depends on what the what you're wanting. So so for example, if Colton came up to me and said, Cody, we're having this problem and I'm getting XYZ ester profile and I don't like it. You're like, don't let your grain mold, you fucking idiot. <laughs> That's usually what, I mean, first and foremost, that would be the thing I would tell him, say, hey, get rid of this shit. We'll move forward with something else. I thought I was supposed to water it down every day. Moist. Keep it fresh. <laughs> it. Just open up your silo <laughs> and spray it down. And making sure it's good and hot and hot and warm is the best. You know, 100, 102 degrees, 87% moisture is good. um but anyway you know if if that's the scenario we would have to take a look and and say okay we need to do this and see where the ester profile comes out or where your flavor profile comes out at a dc level and then see what we can do um and then there's an array of things you take a look at like does a yeast changing yeast make sense does uh I, i changing a grain profile again it comes back to everything comes back to the goal of the facility which uh at acsa that was my number one point that i brought up i hope anyone who sat through my acsa talk learned that is have a goal going into fermentation as opposed to just throwing ingredients into a pot and seeing what happens yeah that's that's kind of tough so if you like you make your web chart and everything and you're like okay there's the, it's this profile that's under your very specific lab conditions. Yes. And that will change. I mean, that's the thing is the spider chart. We have spider charts on two of our yeasts, um, which look really pretty. But I, the caveat is that is 100% controlled. And when you throw it into your process, it's not going to be that way. But it does give you an idea of what could happen. Because most yeasts are, I, I mean... I would say this, most yeast are going to, under certain conditions, give you the preferred flavor profile of that yeast. And I say preferred of that yeast, it means they're going to mat- metabolize a certain way, and based on the conditions you give it, it's going to generally spit out a, a certain organic profile. Well, are your labs designed more off of the way a a craft distillery would do it or the way a fuel ethanol plant would do it like you mentioned fermentation or sorry a fermenter shape 
and mm-hmm. probably the amount of DO. And... Well, so you could model anything. Um, I would say the real difference would just be down to the level of data we would generate versus the level of data a craft distiller would generate. Um, and it goes back to like what we were saying when we started off. So I would under a, a one or two or three fermenter trial in a lab to understand a problem, probably pull or address a question, probably get tons of samples on this to show show you what your fermentation looks like and how, I mean, we've seen experiments where you can generate ester profiles over time. So again, you go back to every 6, 12, 18, 24 hours, you may be able to show what that ester profile looks like over fermentation. Now, are you going to do anything with that? Uh, it's debatable, but in a, in my generating data for you, I would show you that to say, okay, is there anything we can do with this? And the question, the question always is, I don't know what I can do with that. This is the unfortunate part. <laughs> yeah, you get our hopes up, and then you just rumbling <laughs> yeah, yeah. down. Oh, cool! It tastes like a, it tastes like a orange starburst. <laughs> at this, at uh, this point, I can't use that. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about all of. I mean. Usually when you go into an experiment or a question like that, it's we're going to generate as much data as you can. And then when you give it to when I give it to you, you're going to be like, man, this is phenomenal data. I really love it. But it's useless. I can't do anything. (laughs) anything. I can't do anything with the 98 percent of the data that I gave you. But I can touch that 2 percent at the end. But you learn a lot from it. (laughs) Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, it's fun to look at. Right. Um, So. Dry yeast, cream yeast, or like a lot of, you know, I know a lot of old school Scottish distilleries and a lot of American big whiskey distilleries are do what they call bubbing, right? Where they make their own mother yeast and keep that propagated. So which one, which one, dry cream or bubbing, or if you have another option, I'm all ears. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure that the yeast salesman is going to say bubbing <laughs> for sure. Yes, that's my favorite. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Like, don't buy any yeast off of me. Use your own. Um, I, I actually prefer that you guys swab your shoe. Yeah, I, I prefer spinning in fermenters to be honest. I mean, use your natural. Um, no, so I, I actually have this conversation a lot and it's a sales-based conversation to realize that, but if I were to break it down technically, um, if I look at three, let's do four forms of yeast. So bubbing or cell, I'll call it, um, yeah, we'll go with bubbing. It's called one. propagation, right? That's what it is, right? Well, uh, yeah, I, I've i always termed propagation different. So you've got bubbing into liquid yeast, into crumble yeast, because that's one that Colton had never heard of, that's into true. dry yeast. All right? So so bubbing, you're going, just for definition's sake, you're going from a slant to, and you're doing this in your own lab, slant of a yeast culture that's grown on it under, we'll call it sterile conditions. <laughs> Arguable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, I said let's call it... Um, into a broth, you're growing the broth up overnight, transferring broth, and you're going from uh, a yeast culture the size of a ballpoint pen to, um, say, a five-liter broth that's then going into a mash scenario and being mashed up in size multiple times. So the pros and cons of, of that system, the pros, um, you're managing your own yeast culture if you enjoy that um, and you know that you've had either through a banking service or through what you've done, you've controlled that yeast culture. There's a possibility that you've controlled genetic drift. <laughs> also a possibility that you have increased genetic drift. Um, yeah. oh, that is very possible. I mean, depending, it's all dependent on how it's banked, right? You can control genetic drift through a banking service. If it's not through a banking system service, you can 
increase genetic drift if you want to. Anyway, you have a culture um, that is semi-controlled or generally controlled, and you grow it up yourself, and there's a lot of handling steps all the way up. Generally, uh, process risk is involved in that to a degree. I mean, it could be argued, but uh, you know, what I've seen is there's a large amount of process risk. Uh, you know, a guy drops a flask that's supposed to go to a fermenter and you've just lost your yeast culture because it's broken and on the ground. And now you have to come up with a way to pitch a fermenter with yeast that you don't have. Um, seen it happen. So uh, there's also risks that you could in, put in contaminants um, that are inherently bad for fermentation, or you may put in a contaminant that actually gives you a, a flavor that you like. Um, the pro to that is generally it is very little to no cost outside of upset control. Um, if we move up in, and I'm going in ease of, or a handling side. So if we go up to, from this bubbing system where you've grown your yeast yourself to a liquid yeast, what you're doing is you're purchasing uh, a yeast format that is, is grown from uh, the manufacturer in liquid form. and the But it could be your slant, right? Like you could, could say. Yes, there, there are companies that, that do um, uh, contract manufacture, so it could be your your slant. Uh, I'm, what I'm really talking about when I go from bubbing to liquid to crumble to dry is the conversion from managing self-management of a, of a yeast strain to commercial management of a yeast strain. So um, for liquid, I'm going to make the assumption that you've gone to commercial management there. And and the, the beauty of liquid is you set a pump for so many gallons, so many milliliters, you send it to a fermenter and it grows, or you send it to a propagator, you propagate it and it grows. Um, typically liquid yeast you are spending less per pound, but you're buying water. Um, and I'm not talking for everyone, and, and I'm not giving price ranges on, on that side. But liquid typically has a faster takeoff in fermentation because you don't have a rehydration step. So you put your strain into the fermenter, and it starts converting sugars into alcohol and or um, esters quickly. Uh, but like you said, you're... You're buying water and you're shipping water. Yes, yes. <laughs> you're handling. There, there's no way, and, and we sell liquid yeast. Um, and I actually, I've been involved in a lot of liquid yeast products. I like liquid yeast because it has a lot of good attributes to it, especially this fast takeoff. There's no rehydration steps to it, where there's minimal acclimatization. A great word steps to it. Um, and don't ask me to say it again because I can't. Yeah, it's perfect, man. Nailed it the first time. <laughs> I love that you just inserted your entire penis <laughs> in your mouth for pronouncing that word, Cody. It's really well done on this podcast. Did you really have to go from wet yeast to a penis joke? I mean, <laughs> I did. I mean, this was this is a great episode. I'm enjoying every minute of it. We needed. I'm sure my wife will listen to this and she'll just be proud of me that I didn't use the word moist. Uh, now that I've thrown that in there. I'm... Yeah, you just did. <laughs> yes, yes. So, and in fact, she almost encouraged me to throw secret words into the podcast, which I haven't done yet, but it's coming. Up. Are you putting out a coded Ooh. message in our highly listened to podcast? <laughs> 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 no, not not yet. So right, you've just doubled our listener volume. This is incredible, <laughs> guys. This has been best podcast ever. <laughs> we might have to just change it to listeners. No, no, shut your goddamn mouth. <laughs> the, the downside. So again, back to pros and cons to liquidies. The big con or two big cons to liquidies: a, you're purchasing water, which isn't necessarily. If you understand that, and um realize what's going on there. It's an easy workaround. The other downside is shelf life. You have to refrigerate it. And depending on the how your yeast was made, your shelf life is going to be very short, like two weeks short. Um, or 
I'll just leave it at that. It could be a little bit longer with special additives, but really you're talking a very shortened shelf life. Um, I mean, you could have a very cold fridge to extend that too. <laughs> and this science hour has been brought to you by God. cold months. <laughs> so then, then you're going to get up uh, in terms of yeast, the next two, uh, uh, well, and let me actually add this to the liquid yeast. We, AB Maori, AB Biotech, we sell a lot of liquid yeast to distilleries overseas. That is actually, and it's a goal of ours in the U.S. Um, as we, it's look, tankers, right? You bring in tankers. Like, yes. How do you package it, right? That's what's the. the that's so, what I'm curious about. So they're using large volumes. Um, I mean, it's a larger volume scenario. We would have like uh, a completely automated system over there that has two tanks, refrigerated tanks, think glycol type unit. Um, you bring a tanker in, you unload the tanker. There's a level indicator in the vessel that has the, the yeast in it. So when it gets to a critical level and knows to reorder, and we actually have automated reordering systems. And uh, like a boiler or other system in your plant, there's a PLC that I can say send six gallons of liquid yeast to a fermenter. And it sends it send six gallons, does a quick flush of the line, can clean the line with some CIP solution, and it's done. I mean, it's really as automated and push button as possible, but you're talking, you bring a tanker in, you dump it into a, a vessel um, that's refrigerated, and it's all held there, and, and you're turning over tankers um, very quickly, just based on usage there. But that's that's our Scottish, our Scotland side. Um, in the states, we don't have a liquid unit yet. Um, we'd like to get there, but it's a matter. Yet, yet, I'm working on it. Come on, Cody. <laughs> I, I said yet. From a fermentation standpoint. Why are they? Why is it worth it for them to order li- reorder liquid yeast all the time? You so know, you're, you're saying it takes off faster. Yep. But if they just have it sitting there in their tanker all the time, it seems like they might be able to, you know, with proper scheduling, just handle dry yeast and see the so, same results. So with dry yeast, there's um this long. I'm going to say long. There's this process that you do every day that you don't even think about called rehydration. Um, <laughs> and even if you're dry pitching, in, I don't do that shit, Cody. Fuck even me. if you're dry pitching into a fermenter, you're still doing this process called rehydration where your yeast have to become reanimated. Um, I could look at, I should know this and be able to spout a number off to you right now, but I can't. But if you look at a rehydration curve, let's say, again, this is the number that I should know, but it's not coming to me. Let's say it takes an hour for yeast to get fully rehydrated and activated to the culture that it's in and start converting sugars. Now, it's probably not that long. Again, I'm spitballing a little bit here. Now, you you throw a liquid yeast in that environment, it's already rehydrated. And within, say, 15 to 20 minutes, you've got sugar consumption you've effectively eliminated 45 minutes now 45 minutes doesn't sound like a lot but 45 minutes is going to add up over time and it's going to change the way your fermentation kinetics play out over time so it gives you a better fermentation Um, one thing i learned a long time ago is i don't like having fermenters sit full of mash without yeast in it because it gives an opportunity for too much bacteria. I'm not going to say bacteria is a bad thing, but too much bacteria. So by having a faster yeast culture, it can actually help you in that competition game to not have too much lactic acid. So it's not a weird Scottish or Scottish heritage thing. No, I believe. Yeah, if I go back in history, I I can talk to my my rep over there. Actually, I'll talk to him either tomorrow or Thursday. Um, it was a conversion. So it started with dry. We, you know, if we look at what we're selling there, it started with dry, and over time we went down a liquid path. So it's not a the format. I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it's it's a conversion of format that didn't play into it played into ease of operation versus and, and handling 
versus having to deal with with dry. I, I got to say this. I'm going to, and Colton, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say um, I, I think a lot of distillers that we know in the craft sector use dry yeast, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think the majority. So, yeah, I would say the majority of them do. So what is the best way to pitch dry yeast in your opinion, Cody? Wait, wait, should we, Zeno, should you and I both say how we do it and then see how wrong we are? We already know how Colton does it. He pre-moistens all his grain, gets a light mold on it. (laughs) He molds his yeast. Yeah. Yeah. He molds his yeast, uh, throws an (laughs) onion in, and then uh, the rest is magic. He, didn't I see you had like large vats of yogurt? Probiotics, baby. <laughs> Got to keep that gut bio fresh. You know, this is a, one of the hardest questions that I have. It's it's debated all the time, right? Oh, for sure. I view all yeast pitching, um, and it's only because I come from a you know I worked in an operational background. I want everything as operator friendly as possible to eliminate risk. There's two methods that I look at, especially on the craft side of handling dry yeast. One is rehydration. And there's every yeast company has a rehydration protocol. And if you read every company's rehydration protocol, it's very simple and it's basically the same. Yeah, I don't know. I religiously follow Lollament. I'm just saying. (laughs) And I would guarantee you that the one that I gave you would be... 99.9% 99.9% it would just have a different letterhead I'm sure um, that said I think you take rehydration and then you take dry pitching right rehydration takes steps not that these steps are that hard but I also know that not every operational crew is consistent and i'm trying to be nice oh shit are you gonna just are you gonna recommend dry pitching right now (laughs) no i'm not i'm gonna say you do whatever works best for your facility and allows you to eliminate risk i'm going to use colton as the example colton and his crew did a hundred rehydration and six of those rehydrations were um, acceptable and gave you positive results, then that crew should not be, re- that team should not be rehydrating. So what does a successful rehydration look like versus? You would know that, you wouldn't know that at time zero, you would know that by inconsistency and fermentation over time. It leads you to say, okay, this crew or this team or this distillery has the equipment, they have the knowledge, they know what they're doing, they should rehydrate because it works for them. So it's all about eliminating variables, right? Yes. <laughs> right. And so it sounds like a job for mini tab. Um, <laughs> yeah. And a lot of this, I'll, I'll come back to fuel ethanol. When I was managing <laughs> 700,000 gallon fermenters and you fucked one of those up, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So you did everything you could to not screw up a 700,000 gallon fermenter. So talk to us about crumble yeast because we skipped over it. Um, so, so crumble yeast is... Um, essentially dry yeast got a little, it likes to walk a little on the moist side. That's, that's a good way of putting it. I also like the number of times you've said moist has increased almost exponentially. Your wife is going to be so disappointed. Well, I think we have our episode title. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to apologize to your wife right now. I don't know her. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things, you know, once you, you know, you break the seal, it's out there. And it's like, all right, we're, we're going down this road now. Um, no, so crumble yeast is, uh, it's it's got a moisture content to it. Moisture content in it. And notice I did not say moist, I said moisture. So it carries water. And you know, it's kind of like liquid, but it's in a dry format, typically in a bag. It's going to minimize your rehydration time. Uh, but you also have to deal with shelf life issues. So it's typically shorter in shelf life. If, when you produce liquid yeast, it goes right into a fermenter. It comes out of the fermenter, minimal processing, and you sell it. When you go to crumble yeast, you dry a portion of it. You just don't take it all the way dry. You don't like go through the air dryer or spray dryer. And then when you go all the way dry, you go through your spray dryer. You're eliminated one step of the drying process. Most companies 
don't like to handle it because of health. I was going to say, in what circumstance would that be more beneficial than just going one way or the other, either dry or? There is a circumstance. I just don't have one. I mean, I've used crumble <laughs> yeast before. <laughs> Your honesty is outstanding. Thank you. Good man, Cody. And was the only <laughs> thing I was selling. <laughs> But, uh, I mean, honestly, it's crumble yeast. All you're really doing is minimizing rehydration time. It's so non committal. It's like it's not quite wet, it's not quite dry. <laughs> Just shove it in there, right? Yeah. I, I mean, really, when I use, use crumble yeast, the, the only real difference was if I was going for a propagator tank, I had a shortened propagation time because I didn't have to go through any rehydration. So, like, so maybe. Maybe somebody dropped the flask of yeast. Well, I'll put it this way. You moist pitched a crumble yeast. I was going to ask about propagation systems and all, but I don't think we have time for all that. We talk about rum a lot on this podcast. Uh, Why? Because it's the year of fucking rum. I feel that was well, established on a really good podcast a while ago. It's not debatable. Yeah. It's been called golden. Do people ask you to do weird shit with their rum and, you know, ask you like, hey, can you can you look into my dunder? And like, there's like, <laughs> like there's all that. Run a HPLC on my dunder. I assume, uh, that, I assume that HPLC on a dunder is just all peaks. It's just like a flat, yeah, all line, peaks. A flat line of peaks. <laughs> yeah, no, I, honestly, I've, I, I mean. But there's, I mean, there's all the bacillus, you know, species. Yeah. There's like, there's all these different species that it. It is part of the uh, terroir of rum, I would call. Right? There is a whole flora of... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've done so many. When you start going down that whole species audit of a, a facility, it can be a very beneficial thing, and it can be such a fucking rabbit hole that you get lost. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, I know... I do know some rum distills are like, man, I'm really looking for, <laughs> and they just pull out a bacteria, and I'm like, ah, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Um, usually, usually I will. If you do that to me, I will say, yeah, and then I'll have no idea what species you're talking about, and, and then uh, go to my hotel or Google it on the drive back and be like, what the fuck am I dealing? With? I will say this though: there are some, there are more and more, and I like it that you know that the industry is becoming a little more educated and like it's all evolving. A lot of people are starting with the end in mind, right? And they're working mm-hmm. like, I want a very tropical profile. Like one of my friends who has a rum distillery is like, yeah, man, I want more tropical and less grass. Like that's what I want out of my yeast, my yeast. Just he's experimenting with yeast and everything. And he dunders too, but. You should, uh, we just brought a new yeast to the U.S. for rum. So um, that's, that's my plug. There you go. There you go. Well, uh, you should talk to him because he's a great guy he'll be on the show eventually too and actually he makes rum that i really like so it's tim russell from maggie's farm Just gonna throw it out there. don't sell him so hard though i do no i'm selling him like he he yeah. knows he makes good rum like i mean i always say in this in cody you can attest to this too because it's not fuel ethanol right fuel ethanol is fuel ethanol is fuel ethanol yep. the proof is in the pudding here right like i don't oh give, yeah i don't give a fuck how you ferment it or what you do if it tastes like satan's asshole i'm i don't really want it you don't care what their yield was yeah right <laughs> final thoughts <sighs> there's a double there's a double classic uh, triple double final thoughts yeah, classic, classic double. It was a classic grunt, but double. Yeah, one of those uh, hoopy yeah. shoot terms. I, I don't even know what that means. It's a basketball term, right? I, I heard it in an Ice Cube hoopy song. Hoopy shoots. <laughs> Absolutely. Back on the radios. <laughs> That's easy, right? <laughs> wow, we should not be talking about this. This is getting real racist real quick. All right, so uh, final thoughts. Um, yeah, yeast, I, uh... ma- yeast matters. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm going to go relook at my rehydration technique. I guess pouring water on top of my yeast isn't going to work anymore. 
Only if you do it in like a bucket of yogurt, as Cody <laughs> yeah. as Cody recommended. Yeah, yeah. yeah, eliminate the yogurt bucket. You guys heard it here. Yogurt bucket recommended by AB Biotech. <laughs> What's the final thought again? <laughs> uh, Brian, go. Isn't there like a theme to it? Is it just yeast? <laughs> what do you mean? What's the final thought? Hey, I got the news part. You got the we final have, thoughts. I we feel literally like I have two segments. <laughs> yeah, usually, usually I ask a question. Uh, I feel like it is. And uh, just make sure you measure your zabats properly when you're doing your yum pitching. Cody, you have anything last to say? Uh, no. I Hey, guys, I appreciate the time. It's been fun. Hey, we appreciate it. I don't feel like any of us did final thoughts. I think we just said final thoughts. We talked some more and then we were done, which I, I felt actually felt pretty good about that. <laughs> we'll have really good final thoughts. Next time. <laughs>